we're learning about Jesus' earthly ministry from the time of his birth to his death, burial, and resurrection. And we're doing that through a harmony of the Gospels. We're taking the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we're going verse by verse expositionally through those books to learn about the life of Christ. Um, I was thankful to be called here to be the pastor last October, and we've started in October with uh, uh, the pre-incarnate Christ and the fact that he is the eternal God. And now today we're going to see him cleansing the temple. And if you can tell at our pace, it'll probably be four or five years before we get through the life of Christ, but that's okay. There's nothing in the world wrong with studying and talking about Jesus. Um, So... uh, Uh, For those of you who uh, are not familiar with the way we do things here, um, we have something called our um, keywords for our worshipers in training. Uh, These are words that our children learn in Sunday school. The words today, keywords for our worshipers in training are the words temple, cleanse, and heart. So what happens is in Sunday school, the kids learn what those three words mean and look at some Bible verses that talk about the temple, cleanse, and heart. And then we ask them now in the service to listen for those words as we go through the message today. And not only are the the children in our church worshipers in training, but we too as well. So some of the things that we want to listen to for today are the words temple, cleanse, and heart. Let's pray and then we'll go to his word. Father, we do thank you. We thank you for all of the many blessings that you pour on our lives. We thank you that we can come to you today and worship you in spirit and in truth. We are thankful that we can come to you and find hope and solace in your word. We are thankful for your son, Jesus Christ, and what he has done for us. Lord, we do recognize that all over this world this morning, there are people gathering to worship you in spirit and in truth. And we pray this morning for those that are meeting that you will be with them in a special way. For those that have not even met yet, Lord, we pray that later in this day that you will be with them as well. We want to recognize the fact that in our local community here, we have churches all over this community that are lifting your son, Jesus Christ, up for all to see. And we will pray for those. Today, in specific, we pray for Chapel by the Sea and Pastor David Loftner down on Tavi. I pray that you will be with that congregation, with him as their pastor, uh, that they will do things according to your word and to edify you. We pray that your spirit will be with them. Lord, we also want to pray um, for those who are reaching out to the uh, elderly in our communities. I know that there are several ministries here in Savannah that do go out and preach and teach at the uh, nursing homes and the, and the uh, living facilities here in our area. And my prayer is that you will be, them, be with them today. This is such a desperate thing, Lord. You tell us that true religion and undefiled for you is for us to go and to visit the widows and provide for them in their need. And there are many today that are seeking to do that by going out and spiritually feeding those who do not have the ability to go and gather in churches. So be with them today as well, Lord. I want to pray for um, uh, the IPTT in Egbe, Nigeria, a pastor's theological seminary in Africa that is equipping men to go out and preach to the people of Africa the proper and true word of God. I pray for that uh, seminary, for that facility, that you will be safe, keep them safe, that you will empower their teachers to teach your word uh, in a mighty way. We want to pray for our country and for our leaders. Our country is in a mess. 
And Lord, it is probably because of our sin. You tell us that you will deliver us over to unruly judges and rulers when we will not follow you. I pray for our country, for the United States of America, that you will continue to humble us, but not only to humble us, but to grant us to repentance, to turn back to you and to trust you, to walk away from all that is corrupt. Please be with our leaders, our president, and all of those that are in charge. Uh, their hearts are in your hands, and I just pray that you will steer them in a way that will help us to live in peace and prosperity. So now, Lord, we come to your word, and we thank you for that. I pray for myself as I teach this lesson uh, and preach this sermon that you will be with it in a mighty way. And I pray for every ear and every heart and every mind and every life in this room. I pray that you will help us to realize that your son, Jesus Christ, is the way, the truth, and the life. And that by trusting in him, we can find cleansing and forgiveness. That by trusting in him, we can have fellowship with you. So be with us in this time. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Last week when we were together, we saw Jesus give a sign by setting aside a purification ritual of the Jewish people. He turned water into wine. He went to a Jewish wedding festival and disrupted the whole thing by... uh, providing his first miracle for people to witness the turning of water into wine. And he took those old stone vases and that plain water and those uh, vases that were used for ritual washings by the Jewish people. He took that old ritual, that old culture, and he turned it into wine and brought joy to a, a festivity, to a festival of a wedding. And we talked about that together last week. Well, this week we're going to see him disrupt another public festival. We're going to see him go into the temple, and we're going to see him scatter the people. The link between these two passages point us to his hour. The reality is is that Jesus has come in the flesh to establish his kingdom here on earth. And in establishing that kingdom here on earth, he is going to cause disruption. He's going to flip this world on its head and show us how we are wrong and how he is right. And we as people, self-righteous, self-sufficient, self-willed people don't like when God steps in and tells us how to live our lives. And we're going to see that again today. But these two signs that we see here, the turning of water into wine and the sign of him going in and cleansing the temple are to point us to the reality that he has come to establish his kingdom, that he is king of kings and that he is Lord of lords, and that in establishing that kingdom, he's going to die on a cross. The very people that he came to save are going to hate him and spit on him and nail him to a tree, but in that death, he is going to establish his eternal kingdom. The cross will now, in the rest of the life of Jesus, as we see uh, in our coming sermons in the coming weeks, will, uh, the cross is going to be overshadowing of the gospel message from this point forward. Everywhere he goes, he is going to be despised and rejected by men. He's going to be questioned. He's going to be doubted. But thankfully for some, he's going to be believed and followed. He's come to establish that kingdom, and it will be through his promises and the fulfillment of those promises by dying on the cross that he will save his people. 
the contradictions that we're going to witness today and in the following weeks uh, are going to be distinctions between his kingdom and their kingdom as clearly defined in his life and his death and his resurrection, they will be eternally manifested for all to see. So as he goes and does what he's going to do, as we see him come and proclaim the truth to live out his father's will in a way that we could not, when he comes to do these things, we're going to see him establishing his kingdom and it's going to be in direct and obvious contradiction with the kingdom of this world. Not only do we see that in his life here in this message, but we see it in our own lives. When God comes in and works in your life, there's going to be a conflict between your kingdom and his kingdom. And as he has taught us to pray, we are to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done in me on earth as it is in heaven. And so we also need to remember that not only are these contradictions going to be clear and evident in his life, his death, his burial, and his resurrection, but on that last day when the trumpet sounds and he rips that sky open and he comes down here to judge the world, that distinction is going to be made eternally evident to everyone. He's going to keep his promises. He's going to fulfill his promises. And through those promises, his kingdom will be established. The festival of the Passover is the setting for today's lesson. Y'all remember in the past, we learned that on the 14th day of the lunar month of Nisan, the full moon at the end of March or the beginning of April, the children of Israel were to commemorate the night when the angel of death passed over the house is daubed with blood in the prescribed manner and killed the firstborn of the homes of the Egyptians. After that happened, the Jews escaped from Egypt. The Passover is immediately followed by a feast called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So in the same way as we read in the Old Testament that, that God delivered the children of Israel out of Egypt and now they celebrate this Passover meal every year at about the same time that we celebrate Easter. Every time, every time that they do that, it's a reminder that God set them free from Egypt. And after that celebration, they celebrate the thing called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And in that, all of the Jewish children are taught that they are to go around their houses with little feathers and they're to sweep all through the house and sweep all of the leaven out of their houses. The kids will do this for day in and day out. For days, they go around and sweep up the leaven in the house uh, with a feather. And it's a reminder of them that what? Spring clean, to keep the house clean. In the Bible, leaven is a picture of sin. And these Jewish children are taught through that ritual that they are to go through and purify the house, to clean the house up. And so now in this setting that we see here today, Jesus is going to now come in during the Passover and he is going to sweep clean his house, his father's house. He's going to come in and sweep it clean. The Jerusalem temple is always going to be one of the centers of the conflict between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man. Jesus... Uh, is going to here assault the supposed dignity of the temple. 
Later, he will encounter these same people in that temple, and they're going to want to kill him. He's going to teach in that temple, but his teaching will constantly involve conflict with the traditions and the Judaic religious establishment. Ironically, while Jesus stands in this temple, we're going to see today that he declares to be the true temple of God. So let's read together John chapter 2, verses 13 through 25. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. He found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated at their tables. He made a scourge of cord, and he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then said to him, What sign do you show us that your authority for doing these things? Jesus answered them and said, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It took 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scriptures and the word which Jesus had spoken. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs which he was doing. But Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. Amen. This is the reading of God's word. Let's look at that verse uh, 13, the first verse, the Passover. And it says, Jesus goes up to Jerusalem. Now, remember in the past, we've said, when we say we go up to Jerusalem, remember, where is Jesus from? He's from Galilee. And that's about 60 to 80 miles north of Jerusalem. Well, generally, when you say go up, we think of going north. But this says that Jesus went up to Jerusalem. He came 80 miles down to Jerusalem to go to the temple. What does it mean when it said he went up to Jerusalem? Well, the temple and Jerusalem is on a mountaintop. And so Jesus is ascending up to the temple. Remember, the temple is the place where man meets with God. And as you read in the Psalms, there's there's a group of Psalms in the end of the book of Psalms that's called the Songs of Ascension. The Songs of Ascension going up. And the children of Israel would all gather together and they would climb the side of that mountain together to go up to the temple. And they would sing those Psalms of Ascension as they went up. So Jesus is going to the temple. This is the Passover. And we've learned in the past that God requires all males in that nation three times a year to come up to Jerusalem to worship for festivals. This is the festival of the Passover. And we've already talked about what the Passover is. It's a memory, it's a, a memorial feast, a memorial festival, a seven-day festival to remember that God has saved his children, the children of Israel, out of the slavery of Egypt. 
For you and I, we need to remember that the greater picture is, is that God has saved man from Pharaoh, who is Satan, and the slavery of sin and self, and set us free to go to the promised land, to live for him. And so even in these Jewish festivals, we can see spiritual realities that apply not only to Jews, but to Gentiles as well, to all people. So he went up to Jerusalem to celebrate. Now, it says in verse 14, when he gets there, he finds in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated at their tables. For those that have been a part of our uh, uh, Bible readings, uh, our read through the Bible in one year, we just got through with the book of Leviticus. And Leviticus is a bloody book. There is blood everywhere in that book. Well, the reality is, is that God teaches us that without death, there is no life. Without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sin. And this is ingrained in the Jewish culture. For thousands of years, they have slaughtered animal after animal after animal. And what they're doing is, is they're saying, if they come in faith and they offer that sacrifice in faith, what they're saying is, God, this is what I deserve. And in faith, their sins are transferred on to the animal. But the reality is they have to have faith in the Messiah. And it's what he did on the cross that truly sets them free from their sin. The animals that died are a picture of the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And so he comes to the temple. And, of course, there's, there's people selling oxen and sheep and doves, and the money changers seated at, their, seated at their tables. So a lot of people, if you had to come all the way down from Galilee and come 80 miles, it might not be too fun to be dragging an ox behind you or a sheep or a goat all the way down from there to come down to the temple. So what a lot of people would do was when they got to the temple, they would take some money and they would purchase an animal for their sacrifice. Well, not only that, but you had to use money to purchase the animal. And when you would come from Galilee, you would be using Galilean money. And when you got down to the temple, there was another kind of money that was required of you. See, the Jewish people were very astute. And they knew that all of the money had silver in it. And the more silver the money had in it, the more valuable it was. I don't know if y'all know this or not, but if you've ever looked at the side of a dime or a nickel or a quarter, you'll see that there's little uh, slats cut in it. Well, the reason for that is because back in the day, quarters were all silver. And what people would do is they'd take their knife and they'd shave off a little bit of the silver and collect up a bunch of silver, and then they could go sell the silver, you see. Well, they put those slats on there to show you that the the coin has not been uh, reduced. But the Jewish people loved the money that had the most silver in it, the Roman money. And so what they would do is when you would come down, you had your old Galilean money, and you would go to the money changer and you'd say, I'm just using our dollars just to help us to understand. So let's just say that a bull costs $50. You would go down and you would have to give the man $75 of Galilean money in exchange for $50 of Roman money, which is the money that they would then accept. There was a charge behind it. Just like when you use a credit card, you get charged interest. Well, when you would go and change the money out, you would be charged interest on it. So you come all the way down from Galilee, you pay $75 for a $50 bull. And they were making money. 
Not only that, but let's say that you did bring a sheep down with you from Galilee. Well, th- there was a lot of people in the temple that were crooked. And what they would do is they'd bring them a piece of uh, black charcoal. And you bring your sheep up. The priest would look at the sheep. And while you weren't looking, he'd put a mark on it with that charcoal. And he'd say, oh, no, that sheep is defiled. That's not good enough for, for the, the ritual, for the sacrifice. So I happen to have a whole pen of sheep over here that are good. So... You trade that one in to me, and I'll give you a good one, and you pay me a little bit more money, and, and we'll do a switch here. So he would then take your sheep that had the charcoal on it and carry it around back and get a brush and scrub it off and put that over in the pen of the ones that he was selling to the people. So there was, as in most religion, a lot of graft and greed going on. And so Jesus comes down here, and he finds it, and he would find it in our churches today. I can't, t- I can't tell you how much it saddens me to have to buy a commentary or a Christian book nowadays. Good commentary to good Christian books cost $85 to $100. And it's sad that I have to pay that much to get some information of a bunch of information that he copied from people that have been dead and gone for years and years. Like, he's just basically saying what he had other people tell him. But did you know that most of those commentaries, the publishers will not allow them to be print, uh, allow them to be digitally uh, sent overseas to Africa, Asia, South America, because they're afraid that the people over there will strip the copyrights off of the electric things and print them out and give them to people for free. They're protecting their copyrights. And we do have a right to make a living, and we do have a right to earn money for the things that we do. But to me... That is one thing, the charging of money for those for Bibles. To, pay, to have to pay $150 for a Bible is sad. And that's just one example of the graphic greed that goes on in church. How many of you have lost friends that will tell you, oh, I don't go to church, there ain't nothing at church but a bunch of crooks, right? How many people have you heard say that? Well, tell them, well, don't come or you'll add to the fold. <laughs> because the reality is we're all thieves and liars according to God's word. But what I'm trying to bring up here is is that people are very vulnerable in religious settings and can be manipulated and taken advantage of. And that's a part of what's happening here. Remember, Jesus has come to the temple. Why? Because this is a command of his father to come and to celebrate and to praise God for his deliverance from Egypt. And they have forgotten why they're there and turned it into a business. And so often we think about Jesus as being, we, we sing a song here at our church called Jesus Strong and Kind, right? And, and we think about Jesus and, and today the big thing a couple weeks ago at the Super Bowl was Jesus, he gets us. And it was showing these people washing people's feet. And it was talking about how sweet Jesus is. Well, there is a truth in the fact that Jesus is kind and Jesus is good and Jesus is merciful. But Jesus is God. And he is worthy of truth. He is worthy of right living in our lives. And when we read that psalm earlier today in Psalm 18 and you see the fire coming out of his nostrils and uh, the lightning and the, the thunderbolts and God's wrath over sin, that's a part of Jesus too. He is a holy, holy, holy God and he hates sin. 
And here Jesus comes into that temple, into his father's house. And instead of hearing people murmur in prayer, he hears the bellowing of cattle. Instead of brokenness and contrition and holy adoration, there's nothing but noisy commerce. And I ask you, when he comes into our church, and he does, he's here with us now in his spirit, what does he see? Does he see a people who love God and loves their neighbors as they love themselves? A people who loves his word, who loves his truth, who delight to be together? I ask you as individuals, what does he see when he comes into your temple, your body? Does he see brokenness and contrition and thankfulness and hope and peace and love and grace and mercy and truth? Or does he see commerce and business and underhanded dealing and deception and lies? Remember, what does he come to do? He's come to cleanse the temple. And he really did. He physically, you know Jesus was a man when he comes in there and runs those Jewish people off of their money tables. Like, and I'm not just saying Jewish people, but men don't like to part with their money. You go in and try to break up a local poker game here and see what happens. Right? You don't get off of people's money like that. But he comes in and in his authority and his, and his strength and in his expression of anger... He runs all of them out of there, runs all of the cattle out, gets a whip and drives them out. And Jesus is not just some sissy boy. He's God. And he was strong enough to go to that cross and do what his father commanded of him for me and you. And so what does he see when he comes into your temple? It's something we all need to contemplate every day. So, let's look at Malachi 3.1 because we do need to remember that everything that Jesus is doing is a fulfillment of Scripture. Remember, he said, I have come to fulfill the law and the prophets, right? I'm not come to destroy, but to fulfill the law and the prophets. Well, y'all remember in our story of John the Baptist, we learned that John the Baptist was a fulfillment of, Behold, I'm going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek, he will suddenly come to his temple. So John the Baptist has come and proclaimed Jesus is here. And now what does Jesus do? He comes to his temple and he is the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Watch what he's going to do when he comes. But who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. What does refining fire do? It purifies. What does fuller soap do? It cleanses. Have y'all ever used any lye soap before to take your hide off, but it'll clean you up, right? And that's what it's saying. When he comes, when he appears, he is going to be a refining fire. He is going to cleanse his people. And then that last verse, verse 3 says, he will sit as a smelter and purifier of silver, He will purify the sons of Levi. Who are the sons of Levi? The priests. And refine them like gold and silver so that they may present to the Lord offerings of righteousness. You see? So not only does he come to me and you and work in our lives. We are priests. 
We are his chosen priests, his royal nation now. We are his people. He's come in to cleanse us. But he physically fulfilled that prophecy when he went into that temple and ran those men out of there. And said, get out of here. This is my father's house. This is a place that we come to worship my father in spirit and in truth. And you've turned it into a wicked den of thieves. You've turned it into a place of business. The temple itself is the focal point where God and believers meet. Where God accepts his people because of bloody sacrifices. But that temple has now been superseded by another temple. Verse 15 said that he made a scourge of cords, drove them out of the temple with the herds, poured out the coins of the money changers, and overturned the tables. He said to those selling doves, take these things away and stop making my father's house a place of business. Last week, Mary told the people, remember she was at a wedding, and this is what she said, do what he tells you. Remember she said that when he was going to turn the water into wine? Mary said, do what he tells you. Well, here's some good advice. Stop making my father's house a place of business. It is a place that we go and worship God. And the kids would have, I think they may have learned this in Sunday school this morning if they got to it. But the reality is this. This is not a temple. This is not even a church. The church is the body of Christ. The Presbyterians, who I do have some agreement with, not a lot, but some agreement with, they have a term for their building. They call it a meeting house. And I like that because the church is the body of Christ. The church is the people of God. At that time, it was a physical people and it was a physical temple. But now the people of God and the place that we go and worship is is different. We are the temple of the living God now. Paul tells us that we are the the temple. His spirit indwells our bodies. And so in the same way that Jesus went in and cleansed out that temple, the Holy Spirit is at work in the life of believers to cleanse them as well. And it should grieve us when we see people making church a business. We have so lost sight of who God is and his holiness. There's a book called The Holiness of God by R.C. Sproul. And one of the premises in that book that he makes is that we have made our churches like a workplace now. It's very comfortable. There's nice carpet and nice soft seats, not them old hard pews anymore. The ceilings have been lowered down and we got good air conditioners and, and, and everybody smells good and it's just nice and lovely. But we've lost the sight of God's holiness in doing that. It's just like going to work or it's just like going to school. Instead of being a place that we come and worship God. Some of you in this room or or a few of you in this room are old enough to remember when you would have got your legs tanned for getting up and running around the pulpit. Around the pulpit. You didn't cut up and joke around when you were in church. God is holy, and he expects us to be holy as well. 
And this meeting place is supposed to be a place where his holy people come and worship him in spirit and in truth. So stop making God's house a place of business. We are to be about our father's business, which is doing his will. So verse 16 said, he, he said to those, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. So we see now the conflict <clears throat> And now we will see, or the cleansing. We've seen the cleansing. Now we're going to see Jesus consumed. Verse 17 says this. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So on the back of the screen there, you see that's in large print. Well, what that's denoting is that as a quote from the Old Testament is from Psalms 69.9. Let's look at that really quickly. Psalm 69.9 says, the Jews then said, no, that's not what it said. You got it? Oh, it's up there. I'm cut off. The zeal of your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. This is David writing this psalm, but he's speaking through the power of the Holy Spirit, and he is prophesying what Jesus would see. The zeal of your house has consumed me. I ask you this morning, what has consumed you? Jesus' passion and desire was to be in his Father's presence and to be doing his Father's will. It is what consumed him. It what, it, the, the, the road to the cross is known as his passion. It's what he desired more than anything else. And I ask you this morning, what consumes you? What does the psalmist say? I was glad when they said to me, let's come into the house of the Lord. I was happy. It really delighted me to get here this morning and see you guys. Like, I look forward to seeing you. I really do. I look, uh, all week long, I'm with, I have to deal with people all week. A lot of lost people, a lot of people that get on my nerves. Now, I'm just being honest and blunt with you, but I work in customer service, and a lot of times people do some of the silliest things in the world. They just get on my nerves, and they bother me. But when I come here, I'm with, with, with my family. I'm with my eternal family. And we are here to worship him together. And all week long, I've tried as best that I can to be consumed with his truth and getting it ready in a way that I can share it with you. Like, that's my passion and my desire. That's what consumes me now is his truth, his word, his will, his mission. And I can tell you that there was a time in my life, there are people in this room that could attest to this, that I lived with a zeal and a passion for the things of this world to the point that they almost destroyed me. Like, I lived for this world, and it almost killed me. But, boy, I went hard after it. And anything that I've ever done in my entire life, I go hard after it. It consumes me. It's what I want to do. And I ask you this morning, what consumes you? Is it your family, your friends? Your habits, your hobbies, your careers, your hopes, your dreams. What is it that consumes you? For Jesus, it was his father's house and his father's will. So, Jesus is cleansing of the the temple. This is a quote from a guy named D.A. Carson. He says, Jesus is cleansing of the temple testifies to his zeal for pure worship. A right relationship with God 
at the place supremely designated to serve as the focal point of the relationship between God and man. Jesus' cleansing of the temple was to testify to his zeal for pure worship and a right relationship with God. So let's go now to verses 18 to 21. Verse 18, the, the, we see the conflict now. When he comes in and does what he does, he's going to cause a stir. He comes in and the men say, show us a sign to prove your authority to do this. Now, these men do not show any reflection of self-examination or make a statement of whether Jesus' cleansing of the temple was just and right. They are therefore less concerned with pure worship and a right approach to God than they are with questions of precedent and authority. It's all about being the boss. Who are you to come in here and tell us how to do this? Right? Now, there's no questions about the fact that they're in the wrong. Right? We don't like to be told we're wrong. We don't like to be told we're not walking right. We like to be patted on the head and told how good a little boys and girls we are. Jesus did not do that. He came in and run them out and told them they were all wicked. And they do not address the fact that they're wicked and they're doing wrong. They simply say, who are you? To tell me what to do. And ladies and gentlemen, I can tell you that in my own personal life, and I'm going to be willing to say that in your life as well, the Lordship of Jesus Christ is something we battle with every day. I don't want him to be the boss. Because if he's the boss, I'm not. And he is in direct conflict now with a a group of men who are full of self-will, self-righteousness, self-sufficiency. They don't need God. They have a religion. They don't need God. They have their pretty clothes and their customs and their culture. They don't need God. They are his people. And we as a church can fall into that same attitude. God, we talked about this this morning in Sunday school. God has given us the light of his word to share with those in the dark and to glorify him. Not to shine upon ourselves and look at who we are. And that's what they're doing. So this conflict is taking place. The request for a miraculous sign demonstrates that they at least harbor some kind of suspicion that this guy is a heaven sent prophet. In other words, if he was just some wackadoo that come in off the street, you know, some homeless guy that was crazy, they'd come in and run, try to run them all out, they'd have beat him down and run him out the building. This man had the authority to run them out. And they recognized that there's something about this guy because what do they say? Show us a sign. Show us something to prove to us that you are who you say you are. If the authorities that were demanding that sign of him truly had eyes to see, they would have realized that his cleansing of the temple was a sign of a fulfilled prophecy. They would have been able to see him through the discernment of the Old Testament. 
they would have realized that John the Baptist was the voice crying in the wilderness and they would have, they would have admitted to the fact that he is the one that has come to purify and cleanse the temple. They simply did not have eyes to see. Jesus replied to them and said, destroy this temple, this sanctuary, and in three days I will raise it up again. Now again, the temple denotes a shrine, a sanctuary, a dwelling place of deity. <laughs> Anyone who could restore the temple within three days of its complete destruction must be judged to have the authority to regulate its principles and practices. So again, they say, show us something to prove you are who you are, tear this place down, and raise it back up again in three days. He says to them, if you tear this temple down. Now watch what he said. He said, if you tear this temple down, not I'm going to tear it down. If you tear it down in three days, I'll raise it back up again. Destruction of a place of worship was judged as a capital offense in the Greco-Roman world. As we will see later when two witnesses say, we heard him say that he would tear the temple down and raise it up again in three days. That was one of the convictions they used to nail him to the cross. Two witnesses came together and said, hey, we heard him say that if he te- he'll tear the temple down and then he's going to build it back up in three days. But he didn't say he will tear the temple down. What did he say? You tear it down and I will build it back up in three days. What Jesus was really referring to was his own body, not the physical temple. The irony is in the fact that ultimately the Jews themselves were to be the means of bringing about the very sign that they're asking for. They did not recognize it when it came. There's a further irony in the fact that to put Jesus to death was to offer the one sacrifice that can really take away sin and thus doom the very temple that they were relying on as a place for offering sacrifices. Jesus said, if you tear this temple down in three days, I'll raise it up again. And what we're going to see over and over again through Scripture is is that because of our physical minds, our physical bodies, our physical understanding, we often miss the spiritual realities of what the the, the scriptures are teaching us what God's word is teaching us. And they missed it. He said, you tear this temple down in three days, I'll, destroy, I'll raise it back up again. And they said, we've been here, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. This is actually the, Herod's temple, not the first temple. The first temple was destroyed by the Babylonians, remember? Why was it destroyed? Why was the temple destroyed by the Babylonians? Because God brought a judgment down on his own people because they were relying on the temple and they were using the temple as a place for idolatry. They were using the temple as a place to worship false gods instead of worshiping God. And so what did he do? He took the temple away from them. Now he's come and he says, you tear this down and in three days I'll raise it back up again. And the reality is they're asking for a sign and they're the ones that's going to give the sign. They're the ones that's going to nail the temple to that cross. They're going to get their sign and they're going to be the cause of it. It is important to note that the temple is not the first. It is a ta- uh, remember, the tabernacle in the wilderness actually points to a, a place that we go to meet with God uh, in the Old Testament. The Jews 
naturally were incredulous that a building under construction for 46 years would be able to be rebuilt in three days. Their misunderstanding arises because they focus on purely material things, the natural, and they miss what Jesus is really talking about. So verse 21 says, Jesus was speaking of the sanctuary of his body. Now, it is possible to understand his body as the church. We talked about that this morning in Sunday school. Jesus is the head. We at the church are his body, right? That's a spiritual body. But when he says that Jesus was speaking of the sanctuary of his body, he's actually talking about his physical body. Remember, Jesus physically had to die on that cross, and Jesus physically had to pour his blood out because without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission of sin. And Jesus is not an angel. He is a man. He is 100% God, but he is 100% man. And he poured his blood out on that cross. His body was broken for us. And we need to understand that that's what he's talking about there. So there is a reality where the body of Christ is to us as believers. That's a spiritual reality. And think about this. What did natural man in rebellion to God do with the physical body of Jesus? They spit on it, abused it, and nailed it to a tree. Well, what do you think that the world is going to do with the spiritual body of Christ? We're going to be hated. We're going to be shunned aside. We're going to be called misunder, uh, you know, homophobes and, and uh, you, you hate people, like you don't love people, you hate them, and we're going to be rejected and despised just like he was if we're truly living for what he called us to live for. The world wants nothing to do with it. And anytime that you see the world trying to bring Jesus into its step, that's a work of the Antichrist and not of Christ. The world is never going to accept Jesus. And the world will never accept you as a true believer walking in his will and in his way. So Jesus is pointing to his resurrection. Jesus is pointing to the actual destruction of the temple. Remember, in 70 AD, what's going to happen? Because they reject their Messiah, what's going to happen in 70 AD? The Romans are going to come in and they're going to... We're told by the historians that the Roman soldiers literally took hammers and beat the rocks to break the gold out of the rocks of the crushed temple. It's destroyed, wiped out. What are the Jews trying to do today? They're trying to get that mountain back over there right now. The Muslims own it, right? And they're saying, this is our mountain and we're going to build our temple here. But the reality is there's no temple they can ever build that's going to do anything. The meeting place with God is Jesus. The only sacrifice that's going to be accepted by God is the blood of his son. And so he's pointing to the actual destruction temple. And he says in three days, almost always in the Bible, when you read three days, it's almost always pointing us to the resurrection. What did he say? In the same way that Jonah was in the belly of the well, three, three days and three nights, even so the Son of Man will be in the belly of the earth for three days and three nights. And so he's pointing us to the reality of how long he would be in the grave. It, uh, it is the human body of Jesus that uniquely manifests the Father and becomes the focal point of the manifestation of God to us. The living abode of God on earth. Jesus is the true tabernacle. The tabernacle was a tent made out of skin. And in John 1 it said the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. 
Now, another word for that dwelt is tabernacled among us. Jesus is the manifestation of God, the center of all true worship. In this temple, in the body of Jesus Christ, the ultimate sacrifice would take place. Within three days of death and burial, Jesus Christ, the true temple, would rise from the dead. Jesus not only cleansed the temple under this typological reading of the Old Testament, he also replaced it and fulfilled its purpose. So in conclusion, in verse 22, when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered what he said, and they believed the scriptures and the words that were spoken. The disciples believed not only the scriptures, but his word. Look at that again. When uh, It says in verse 22, when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered what he said and the scriptures, the words that were spoken to them. So... The disciples believed the truth. And how was that truth represented? It said in the scriptures and what he said. Now, Jesus does not speak apart from the scriptures to me and you today. When that said that they believed the scriptures, remember the only scriptures that had been written by this time was what? Genesis to Malachi. They believed the prophecies. They believed the promises of God. And they believed the words that Jesus spoke. How do we know the words that Jesus spoke? Any of y'all that have a good King James red letter Bible know what the words that Jesus spoke. But the reality is, is every single word from in the beginning until amen, Genesis to Revelation, is the spoken word of God put down in print for us to know. And so what are we to do? We're to do what the disciples did. They heard his word and they believed him. They heard his word and they believed him. Now let's contrast that with verse 23. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, uh, during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Okay. It is an exercise of faith on the grounds of having witnessed these miraculous signs is the reason why these people believe. Now, that is not the worst of faith to believe on a sign, but it's not the best of faith either. Because the Bible does tell us that in the end days that the devil will come along working signs and wonders. So our faith is not supposed to be based on what we see Our faith is supposed to be based on what we hear. Remember, the way it works for us as believers, believing is seeing. The world tells you seeing is believing. The world tells you, show me and I will believe you. And God says, no, you believe me and I'll show you. So we see that contrast there. Now watch what it says. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. Think about that. Jesus was not entrusting himself to them. Now, the scriptures remind us that Jesus wonderfully promises to put his trust in those who trust him. To all of those that come to me, none will be cast out. Jesus has never said no to anyone who truly comes to him in faith. But if you're coming to him because you saw a sign or a wonder, that's not a faith that's based on his promise. We come to him because we believe his word. We believe him. 
And think about that. How many people have you heard say, well, I've trusted in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior? You better. It's commanded of you. But the deeper question is, okay, you've trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. But has he trusted you? You see, I can only see the nice suit that you wear here at church. And I can only hear the talk that you talk when you're around the preacher. That's why I love working in the secular world because people act like themselves when they don't know the preacher's around. I can only know who you are, what you show me. And the other people in this room can only know who you are as you show, right? But Jesus knows who you are when you're at your worst. And Jesus knows if you have truly trusted him. Our faith should be not just based on our trusting him, because I can tell you there's times when I don't trust him. There's times when life goes awry. There's times when my life gets flipped on its head and I say, God, are you even there? Now, I'm just being blunt and honest with you. There are times in my life where I have a hard time trusting his promises to me. But thank God my salvation is not based on my trusting him, but his trusting in me. And he trusted me enough to send his son to die on a cross to save me. He trusted me enough to send his spirit to convince my heart that I was a wicked sinner and it needed Christ. He trusted me enough to come in and rip that heart of stone out of me and give me a new heart. Not because I was good, but because he is. He saw me in my shattered and brokenness. He He saw me when I had nothing to offer him. He saw me when I was buried in sin and shame and doubt and fear and anger and unbelief. He saw me when I had my fist balled up to him and my teeth grinding, spitting in his face. And yet he put his trust in me. I love you too much to let you keep living that way. You're going to be my child and I'm going to make you that way. And that is who I trust in. So Jesus calls people to trust in him for what he is. What he says he is. Not because he passes some kind of little test that you give him. Oh God, if you'll do this, I'll believe you. Those who have been attracted by miracles and providence would have been ready to make him an earthly king. But he did not trust himself to them. He looked for genuine conversion. Not for enthusiasm and not for the spectacular, but broken hearts that were turning to him. That's what he looked to. Verse 25, and we'll finish with this. He knew all men. He didn't need anyone to bear witness to him concerning man. He knew what was in man. And when you read that man, you need to hear you. He knew what was in you. Let's look at two passages in the Old Testament, and then we'll close in prayer. I promise. 1 Kings 8, 3 said, Then hear in heaven your dwelling place, and forgive and act, and render to each according to all his ways, whose heart you know. For you alone, O Yahweh, you know the hearts of all the sons of men. And then Jeremiah 17, 9 and 10 says this. Jeremiah 17, uh, is that, uh, I actually think that's the one that says, I know the plans that I have for you, the plans I had to prosper you, and the plans to, to provide for you, right? That's later on in that passage. But look what it says up at the beginning of Jeremiah 17. The human heart, the heart, is more deceitful 
than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind even to give to each man according his ways, according to the results of his deeds. Jesus is searching hearts this morning in this very room. What does he see in you? What does he see in me? He loves us and he forgives us and he will save us if we will simply turn and trust him. Not because of something we see, but because of hearing his word, believing his word, and receiving his word. And if you're in this room today and you have never trusted him, if you know in your heart, because remember, his Holy Spirit, Jesus on his throne in heaven is looking into your heart today and he knows what's in your heart. And it's up to us. I don't know what's in your heart. I got enough I'm dealing with in my own that I can't worry about yours. But he's worried about all of our hearts. And he knows what he sees in mine. And prayerfully every day I seek to trust him more and more. Prayerfully every day I seek to walk closer to him. Prayerfully every day I'm reminded of areas in my life where I fall short. And it's not so that he can condemn me and send me to hell. It's so that he will show me his love and make me more like his son. So that I will turn away from myself and turn to him. So if you're here today and you've never trusted him and you know in your heart you need to close with Christ, you need to close with Christ. The Bible says whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. You simply bow your head and you say, Jesus, I'm a sinner. And Jesus, I know you came to save sinners like me. I don't have anything to offer you, nothing. But I need what you are offering me. Please forgive me and save me. And the person who calls him, he has never said no to anyone who calls. So let's close with prayer. Thank you, Father, for this time we had together. As good as I know how, I've shared your truth, your word, with the men and women in this room. Lord, we recognize that our bodies are your temple, and we recognize that we need to be cleansed daily. And we're thankful for what you have done on that cross and what your Holy Spirit does in our lives so that we can know that cleansing. I pray for every man and woman here in this room today, every person in the hearing of my voice, that if there be someone that does not know you as Lord and Savior, that today would be the day that you would bust their heart wide open and show them your grace and mercy. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.